Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, and today I am excited to go back out west again to talk with a new friend from the famous city of Culver City, California. Um, before I get into there, I would recommend, if you haven't yet, to look for past episodes of the You Should Run podcast, where I speak with people from Senator Casey to my fellow council member, Kyle Shank, here in Bridgeport. Um, you can hear lots of various examples of people from every state and the District of Columbia, so make sure to check it out, and hopefully you will be encouraged to run for office too. Uh, but today, I am talking with the mayor of Culver City, Alex Fish. We're we'll going to be talking about what's going on there, what it's like in California, and some issues that I think resonate across the country. So, Mayor, thanks for speaking today. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm tickled that you call this the famous city of Culver City because, you know, our motto is the heart of Screenland. And, in fact, the uh, there are several scenes from the Three Amigos that you can spot uh, Culver City in. And it's got that great line about the infamous El Wapo. So are we the infamous city of Culver City or the famous city? It remains to be seen. You know, this is the I've done over a hundred episodes of this podcast. This is the first time that I recall having Three Amigos brought up, but it really needs to be discussed more because it is a classic movie. Very underrated. Uh, but it look everyone I think in office should be proud of where they're from. I really like my town of Bridgeport, even if I'm not from here originally. Um, but with, we, we have a great donut shop, we have great churches, a park, but it has to be cool to know where you're from and know what you're representing there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that applies also to people who are really trying to, to bring change. I think sometimes people who are comfortable with the way things were uh, in, a, in an imagined past think that people who are trying to improve the city in really bold ways somehow don't like the city. But, you know, the opposite is true. It's, I, I love my city. That's why I wanted to be better. So, so tell me a little bit about your experience there. You have been mayor for a couple of years, but you've been—you've obviously cared about your city for a while. When did you first? How did you first get involved in the political process? I came to this through um, uh, bike and pedestrian advocacy and housing advocacy, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I, I had been a lawyer at a. At a at a private firm, and that was you know more than a full time job. And as I transitioned to um, uh, to public service to a government job, I worked in the California Attorney General's office during the day. Um, I had more time, and I got invested and involved in these the issues I cared about, which you know safe streets and and more housing near jobs and uh, and especially affordable housing. And I was a little shocked when I tuned into my local government and didn't see urgency on these issues. Mm -hmm. I so I so I got involved. I, I think that that's something I've learned from both this podcast and from my own experience on council is there are often issues that the public expects that you're on and you're not. And it doesn't necessarily mean for corrupt or evil reasons, just someone needs to bring it an alert and attention to it. I think that's a really wise perspective. Um, having been at this a little bit now and having had those issues where I was not, you know, as, as forward thinking as people assumed was the case, um, you know, you, you, the question is, what do you do when you realize that you're the person who's uh, who's not not you know moving forward? Yeah. Do you dig in, or do you start moving forward? And how did you come to be involved with affordable housing issues? It's something that you know I, I feel it's hard to be proactive on, but 
it, it's very important everywhere, including in my smaller town of Bridgeport. You're, you're so right again. I, it's, um, it came really came to my attention just watching the housing prices, and obviously as uh, a person of a certain demographic at every dinner party, you know, the subject of real estate comes up, and it became obvious, you know, what the what was happening that here in coastal California, um, land prices are escalating because it's a nice place to be, lots of jobs, and um, home prices are absolutely skyrocketing because you're not putting more houses on the same land. So um, I, I then, as I took more interest in the issue, Cal, uh, Culver City was one of five cities that were highlighted for not um, using our, our previous affordable housing money, which was under a program called Redevelopment, which you probably might have something similar like a tax increment financing, which was rolled up in 2009 or 2010 um, and stopped. But we were identified as one of the five worst cities in, in California for using those funds to actually build the housing. And that just seemed to me to be um, self-destructive. I mean, mm -hmm. if you can't house your daycare workers, you're not a full community. And, and affordable housing is such an interesting issue because the interests are in conflict with some people, right? Like, um, if you own a home and your housing prices are going up, you feel good about, like, I can sell my home for a million dollars now, but no one can afford to buy those houses for a million dollars. Right, and in California, we're really hitting a... It, I mean, it's just straining the, the boundaries of what you could believe is possible mm -hmm. <laughs> with land and home prices. Um, it's true. I mean, I think I think it's a bigger tension for people who own condominiums or townhouses, but because if you own the land, if, you know the land is it sort of moves separately from the housing if you allow enough housing. Um, but you're right. There's a there's a, and there's also some people's prejudice against affordable housing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that those people are are unusually vociferous, and so people miss that people believe that they are a greater portion of the population than is reality. Um, but you certainly hear from them anytime you actually try to build. Uh, yeah, and people have this really unfortunate stereotype of thinking that affordable housing is ugly housing, right? Like, um, we have Habitat for Humanity homes in our town, and yeah, the building of them is not fun, but that's true with any building project. But, <laughs> yeah. like, like, they're really nice houses. Like, you can't tell that the house that's four blocks from me is was made through Habitat for Humanity versus anyone else. It looks, like, just as nice as anything. Yeah, there's, we've got a couple, we've got uh, a few, what, a dozen or so Habitat homes, and I hope we get a bunch more because they're an amazing organization. Um, and, and, yeah, they look great. And there's a funny phenomenon online where someone will post a picture every once in a while of a, a four-level four or five-level over one building, sort of the you know, modern apartment building, and uh, say, this is what gentrification architecture looks like. And nine times out of ten, somebody comes on and says, actually, that's a 100% below-market project. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I noticed from reading and, and following about you is that you're very passionate about climate change. Um, it's something that's really important in California. Um, and I think that the issues of climate change and a coastal state are very connected to the issues of affordable and available housing, right? Yes. There's so many. I mean, it's just an incredible nexus. It, you know, I think... In Culver City, we approach this from a position of privilege and that we're fairly resilient to a lot of climate impacts. We're, mm -hmm. you know, there's lots around us. California is going to have a lot more fires, big, big fires, um, and very severe because of climate change. And um, some some coastal areas will, will be inundated. Um, but, you know, here on the coast, the temperature, 
Ocean will be moderated by the you know the cool Pacific Ocean waters, um, and we've got you know tons and tons of jobs. It's really by making figuring out how to make space for people here is is excellent climate action because you're preventing future suffering in inland places that might be hotter or have more trouble with water. Um, you're also reducing the vehicle miles that people need to put in in their cars to get to and from work. Um, so really, you know, some of the greatest climate action we can do here in a place like Culver City is simply being more welcoming. It's, you know, hearing you say that reminds me of a conversation I had with a mayor in Idaho and um, where it's not a place people would tend to go, but it's beautiful and there is a lot of available land and housing. It seems like one of, maybe one of the answers to climate change is to recognize that, hey, there there's still a lot of great places to move to um, that may be impacted by climate change, but not as severely in the future. That's probably right. You just you look at the maps of the climate risk factors that ProPublica just put out a very accessible map that shows you sort of, you know, our best guess. Nobody knows for certain, but we have a pretty good sense of what's going to happen. And, uh, um, you know, some parts of the country simply aren't going to be habitable in any mm -hmm. real full way. Um, so we have to figure out how to, whether it's creating new cities in places that are now much more comfortable or, you know, taking advantage of legacy cities that have all of the best, you know, best attributes to, to weather climate change. And while that sounds daunting, it's something that we've done before. Culver City hasn't been around for 300 years. There's, you know, California was built on, you know, kind of a lot of small cities with a lot of hope a hundred or so years ago, right? That's a wonderful perspective. I mean, yeah, this city was founded in 1917. It wasn't here. It was Beanfields. And, uh, you know, it, 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 we, you're right. We kind of have lost, I think, throughout the United States, many of us have lost the big vision. I mean, California built a whole water system. You can question the, the wisdom of the choices that were made. But, I mean, the state just said, we're going to bring water to where people want to be. And they did it. Um, we, we can still do that, but we have to rediscover that, that moxie. So the, one of the things I, the, the podcast is called You Should Run. I want to encourage people to run for local office or any office, really. Like I said, we've talked with people like members of Congress or um, uh, state auditors, et cetera. Um, but what can you accomplish on some of these issues? What can people accomplish in a city like Culver City um, through local policy? Yeah, I, I love that you're encouraging people to run because, you know, Going back a little bit in our conversation, so many people are not clued into what's happening. They think that uh, that they they read what is obviously the best set of practices, and they assume that's what's happening. And I got to tell you, listener, um, that most cities that's not the case. Um, so new people, whatever you agree with me, disagree with me, um, new blood, people who are passionate about their city, um, are are very valuable. Everyone should run. Um, you're right, and and you know, for local government, I think I don't know if people share. It, what their perspective is on things like climate change with local government, but we, there's actually a tremendous amount. Some mm -hmm. of the biggest, you know, low-hanging fruit that's out there is in the jurisdiction of local government. You know, how how you can get around your city, how your transit, you know, your your bus and train services is, how your uh, your sidewalks are, you know, whether people are able to meet their day-to-day -day needs without needing a car. Um, these are things that really, really add up. In California, you know, 45% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation. So and that's, you know, very much in the local government sphere. And I know from talking with the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, um, Mayor Garza, they were talking about um, 
the, what he's doing to lead on climate issues. And it seems like there, there's a lot of frustration with things getting done in Washington at any time. And you might have to take months or years or never to get a solution. You can get a lot done more quickly on a local level, right? Yeah, it's funny how sometimes things take uh, ages and ages, and other times they can turn on a dime. But but you're right, local government, especially a small city, yeah, you may not have as much capacity as a big city or congressional district or whatever. But you do have the the people you can just go. I can just go talk to the people who do something in our in the city, and we can you know adjust. It's not always the case. Some things take a long time. You want to do the process and the outreach, but um, but we can you know we can take action. Yeah, it's kind of fun on a local level. Like, if you're in Congress, you have to pass a bill, you have to appropriate, you have to go through these committees. If I want something done on the corner of 4th and Ford, I'm just call up the people and say, hey, why is this not happening here? And I'm like, oh, well, we'll handle it. It's usually something that is a, a quick answer. Yeah, yeah. And the legislative function of a city council is pretty funny, too, because, I mean, you've got five, seven, nine people. We're five. Um, and so you're just looking for two people to agree with you. you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> Forget about uh, you know, pork and uh, omnibus spending bills. You just, you know, ask. And if you got two people who agree with you, boom, you're off you go. Now, there are obviously um, perspectives on California where people think that, you know, every city in California is Berkeley. Um, obviously not the case. And I did talk with a councilman from Berkeley on here, too. Um, but... You know, what, what is the politics like on the council? Is it divisive? Are you guys um, unified? Do you, do you have, like, little um, parochial interests that, you know, are important, but people wouldn't notice from far away? Ooh, I'll try not to give a dissertation here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have a soft spot for Berkeley. I went to school there and uh, know some of their council members. <laughs> but um, Culver City is generally a, a progressive city, um, and I think... You know, when I was elected two and a half years ago, uh, we really swept in a majority of people who wanted to tackle some long simmering problems, and um, so we're we're you know on the on the liberal end of the spectrum. Um, most small cities in Southern California, especially, are much more sort of traditional. Your chamber of commerce and sort of consensus Republican, uh, more conservative Democrat sort of sort of city council. So there's a lot more consensus in most cities. We are. Um, doing things that other cities or, you know, the councils are either not interested in or are waiting to see, you know, how it shakes out in places like Culver City. And I know, like, there is a lot of talk about the presidential elections, about the trends in politics where, um, you know, certain suburban areas and suburban cities were trending away from Republicans, where, you know, you had um, even famously... um, conservative parts of California that were trending away from Republicans, whereas other places um, were moving towards them. Do you notice those national trends trickling down even on your level to what people are paying attention to? I do. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I don't fully understand how they're manifesting yet, right. but I can tell you that they're, you know, looking at the voting patterns on, on other issues that other cities and you know other places in Southern California are voting on, where it really is a litmus test for um, you know, for, for progressive issues. Culver City is actually right now voting just slightly to the left of Santa Monica, California, which is uh, a big change. We were traditionally, you know, probably the most conservative city on the west side of Los Angeles. So um, I don't, I think that that does to some degree have, uh, is, an, is an impact of the Trump phenomena um, that here, you know, he's, he was not a popular president. I think he received 
like sixteen uh, percent of the vote in Culver City, and so I think a lot of people really woke up to all levels of politics and felt felt the need to take control, felt powerless because the uh, you know the the way that the president was elected with the electoral college, it all just seems very distant, and people felt alienated and they wanted to take action where they could. I think it activated uh, I think it activated people in local politics here for sure. It's interesting on a national level how California has changed, whereas you know. People don't realize this, but nationally, California was Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, and now it's Kamala Harris, it's um, potentially Xavier Becerra. Like, it's the representation of who's represented nationally at, in the presidential level is very different than how California used to be. Well, we, we also have Kevin McCarthy, right? <laughs> it's still, it's still, there are still, you know, deep red. Um, traditional conservatives, and there's also the, the, the more recent sort of uh, phenomena here as well. I mean, we've, we had uh, we had mask protesters who were, mm -hmm. you know, it was not just about masks, it was about national issues for these folks too. Um, we had, you know, so there is, and, and I think there's still a base of conservative activism here. So, you know, California, it's these red and white, or red and blue state analyses really do iron out the complexity of all of our states. I, I think my impression is that Pennsylvania has got to be one of the one of the more complicated ones, and that sort of boils down in the news is to just, you know, unions and, and blue state and uh, swing state, and I imagine it's much more. Oh, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I'm in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and 20 or 30 years ago when uh, then-Governor Casey won, my county was the only county that voted for the Republican. And now my county is as almost as democratic as Philadelphia, and it's other areas that used to be democratic that are now very Republican. And I don't know if like those trends continue, how you reverse them a bit. Uh, I feel like things happen and people don't notice why or how. I think that's true. I think uh, you know there are animal spirits in politics too. I, mean, I grew up in a place that uh, was solidly conservative. It's you know near where the Reagan Library is now. Um, and is absolutely 100% the opposite now. It's a solid, you know, blue, blue mm -hmm. district. So I don't know what changed. I couldn't tell you. I, I lived through it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's also interesting when people talk about states that, you know, Donald Trump got more actual votes in California than he got in maybe any other state just because it's so big. And if you took a national popular vote, you know, if you, if you don't take a national popular vote, you're actually hurting a lot of, millions of conservative voters in places like California that, you know, may not ever get heard. Yeah, I mean, I, it's um, one of the great things with local politics is that, you know, you canvass everybody if you're, if you're doing it, right? That's mm -hmm. my tip to people is, you know, I'm a very, probably comes it off pretty clearly, I'm a very, very liberal guy. Um, but I knocked on every door, um, whether it was American Independent Party or Republican, and talked to people and talked to Trump voters. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're, they, 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 they had a perspective that was really valuable to listen to on a, on a doorstep, you know. Um, but I think what really jumped out is that they did not feel that connection to national politics because, exactly like you say, their votes don't matter for you know, for president. Yeah, and I think so it, it's interesting. Um, and that's kind of a lesson to people running on a local level, right? Like, you can win with only your party, but. You, you miss out by by not including everybody. I, there's a lot of local needs from Republicans in my area. And, you know, I disagree with some of them on big issues, but on their local stuff, they're right a lot of the time. 
Yeah, if you're not engaging with people who are serious, and and you know by definition, any one of our constituents is, is serious, um, mm -hmm. then you're just not you're just not you're not challenging your own ideas. You're not going to have the best ideas. That doesn't mean you have to compromise on everything. It doesn't mean that there's you know one solution in the center. Sometimes there's a right and wrong answer. But if you can't if you can't um, talk to somebody about the difference um, well and leave with two people who feel like they've gained from the exchange, then yeah, this may not be the business for you. <laughs> right. Um, but it's harder to talk to people during this pandemic. Um, it may be easy. Is it, do you think it's easier talking to people in Culver City than it might be in my town of Bridgeport because the weather's nice and you can get out? Or, you know, how have you been able to maintain a dialogue with lockdowns and people, you know, suffering through this? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we just had a campaign through through this, mm -hmm. local issues, and people, you know, it was interesting to see people's innovation with, with outreach. Um, you know, the digital stuff is, is good, and I think some of it will be here long term. I, you know, I'd, I'd like to get some virtual office hours going um, to, to maintain that connection, and we'll probably be doing that pretty soon, because um, I, I saw it work well for people campaigning. Um, but yeah, it is, it is, you know, you lose a lot when you can't be at in-person meetings. The, the Zoom calls are not the same. Um, so it's been difficult. But we've also, you're right, we have a little bit more, contrary to the sort of perception, I think, that California is on full lockdown. We've had outdoor dining here in Culver City that's been very successful for um, for most of the pandemic. And, um, you know, we got it started almost immediately, uh, which really helped our restaurants. And also, I think, helped people maintain a bit of connection. Mm -hmm. um, and it's certainly, I see this. I see the stress of people not having that connection. So I think that's really valuable. Yeah, we... We have a bar near me that has had tents and outdoor concerts and dining in my town, and it, I think it's going pretty well. But on the other hand, with the we've had a ton of snow and it's cold, so I am not hanging out outside right now, and that's it's tough here where we can't do that like we could back in the summer and fall. Yeah, no, it's I really I empathize tremendously. It's um, it's hard enough. Uh, and not being able to meet people outside and, and you know, have an outdoor farmer's market or wherever where you can comfortably sit down with your, whatever you buy uh, in a park has is, is got to be that much harder. And but we're getting there. People are getting vaccinated. The weather's warming up. We're getting there. So have you been holding your meetings virtually or have you been holding in-person meetings? Uh, we've been virtual, 100% virtual since the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. We actually got our meetings back online before the city of Los Angeles. So an example of that nimbleness. Um, but yeah, we've yet to return in person. And, and like you said, that nimbleness, sometimes it's nice having a small town where you only have five or seven people as opposed to having however much Los Angeles has with all the people. Because if you have a meeting, you don't just have your mayor and city council. You have your manager, your solicitor, et cetera. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we're doing budget uh, department work plan presentations right now as we develop the budget for the year, and you know, you got you got all the department heads and all of their most immediate people on uh, the city. You know, these calls for a couple of days, and it's still you're talking fifty, sixty people. So it's a lot more manageable than Los Angeles, which has you know has a four million person city, and I don't even know how many departments. Do you think you're still able to maintain that connection to people? Um through virtual meetings like you could in person? I, there's pluses and minuses to it from my experience this year. 
I think that's, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I, I, what I would love is to figure out how to keep some of the participatory, you know, the, the lowering of participatory barriers for, mm-hmm. for people who are busy, um, while also eliminating the participatory barriers for people who are not as tech savvy. So some hybrid of uh, in-person, traditional in-person meetings and, and, uh, and virtual uh, access, I think, would be great as when we come out of this. And I, I believe there's a bill pending in the state, the California state legislature, um, to require exactly that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, like you said in the state legislature, I think that people think that it's just easy for councils to do all those things. It requires funding. It requires sometimes legal liability from the state to do it. And, you know, it, um, I know for us, I miss being in person, but there's probably more people watching our meetings now than ever before. I think that's right. We've certainly heard from people I haven't heard from before. Not and and also just given the you know the uh, the uprising of last summer, um, we we have new people coming into local politics for all new reasons, which has has been you know I, if we can keep those people engaged um, on on the issues that they care about now and on other issues, uh, that'll be a you know that'll be a positive one small silver lining from from that and from the the virtual access. So that's looking forward, and I, I don't know about you, I'm actually feeling very positive lately. Um, you know, the, the weather's getting better, um, the vaccines are very effective, and they're finally rolling out in big ways in this, with the new Johnson Johnson vaccine as well. Um, you know, what, what are your hopes coming out of this pandemic? Do you think that you, Culver City is going to be as strong as ever? Is it going to, do you think you're going to be able to connect with people really well coming out of this? Yeah, I mean, you know, from the from the sort of macro perspective, I'm very boost. I'm I'm very positive too. Uh, you know, and for Culver City, uh, even more positive. I expect we're going to be booming. We already had um, Amazon Studios moving in, HBO's content um, office, uh, Apple's content creation office, um, and I mean, we just have we TikTok is in Culver City. We have just a tremendous amount of uh, of economic activity. And I think that these are things that are going to be, you know, this is this is not getting this, those those functions are not going away anytime soon. And if anything, they'll be more in demand. So um, yeah, I think we'll be booming in that sense. I think we'll um, very quickly people will be <laughs> very anxious to reconnect in person. I think I think that uh, nationally we might have something akin to a Mardi Gras at some point as people reemerge and uh, and make up for lost time. So you you mentioned all those things, and I think it like. For me, it, in a smaller town, it's like a matter of pride to be able to like, oh, I went to my donut shop, I went to my pizza shop, we got food at this restaurant. But for you, like, do you have to keep track of and like champion every show and be like, yeah, I saw this, it's great. This is <laughs> like, do you have to keep track of all that stuff? That's a lot. I think I think we've hit a critical mass with uh, entertainment industry activity that I don't need to do that. I hope. I had a friend, a very good friend, who was a council member in the city of West Covina, which didn't actually produce the show. Um, oh, what's the show? There's a New Girl, is it? Yeah, I love New Girl. Just was a fan. Yeah, yeah, he was a fan of the show, and uh, I think got to meet the cast and stuff. But uh, yeah, if they, if, maybe if they actually set a show in Culver City, that's the show I'll, I'll uh, promote. <laughs> oh, okay, that, that's fair enough. Well, if you can get any of those shows to... You know, do a little cameo at Bridgeport, uh, come out to here. You know, they don't have to do a lot. They can even zoom in with us for something. We we wouldn't mind. I would just say that. <laughs> so for 
now we're going forward, there, there does seem to be a lot of new interest from people. Um, in a positive or negative way, a lot of those new people don't know the process of politics, of governing, and sometimes they're surprised. Um, do you have any tips for people who are considering running for, especially for running for council or for mayor um, in 2021 and beyond? Your, your questions sh show that you're a, a real asset to your constituents. Your, your understanding of these issues is, uh, I think, really impressive, and uh, they're lucky to have you. Um, yeah, I think uh, I, I think the best thing that someone who's interested in city running for city council can possibly do is to get involved and, and attend the meetings, you know, read the agendas and the staff reports, and and um, take a stand, take a clear stand on the things you care about. Because when you do that, you'll meet the people who have cared about that issue pretty quickly, and you'll find out where you align, which is probably lots and lots of places. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually, someone will tell you you should run. Yeah, one thing though you said about people should make a stand. Um, do you think people should put their foot out there, like, just in terms of being successful at getting their issue out? Uh, I think a lot of people, like, get on their bullhorn right away, thinking, I'm going to storm the castle. Maybe that's not the words we should use anymore. But um, yeah, they, <laughs> they, they, they think they're going to be, like, you know, standing on their soapbox, and yet the council already agrees. Do you, do you think you should do some prep work first and be like, hey, I wonder if the mayor already agrees that we should have affordable housing? Yeah, yeah. No, I was kind of imagining that you go and you state your position politely, which is what I always do. But you're right. Um, that's not what. <laughs> that's not everyone's first inclination. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Doing your homework. I mean, once you're sort of, you know, tuned in, uh, I, it becomes. I think generally, especially with a small city, your council members are very accessible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even if they don't respond to every email, it's virtually certain that they'll read it. Um, and, you know, the people who are polite and who reach out and um, and just have a normal conversation, like, like I'm a normal person, are certainly the people who are more persuasive. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, I, don't, I, I listen to everybody, but it's certainly more, uh, more fun to listen to someone who's polite than it is to listen to someone who's consistently rude. Yeah. Um, or who's, and people sometimes will seek to create a disagreement that doesn't exist, which is not productive either. Um, so you're right. I mean, if the interest is to be more influential uh, in the process and to, to, to actually influence the outcome and to, to kind of gain standing and be respected as somebody who, um, who other people would like to, to lead, it certainly works to do your homework, to, to write, to reach out absolutely to council members and sort of understand where they're coming from and try to persuade them. And then, um, you know, don't use your three minutes or two minutes uh, for anything other than a positive statement of your case. I think uh, you're, you make an excellent point there. Right. So one of the best ways to do that if you're in Culver City, or I guess if you're considering running for mayor and maybe you want to learn about um, these issues of housing, of climate issues locally, is maybe to get in touch with Alex. So um, Mayor Fish, if someone is interested in learning more about you, where should they go to follow on uh, social media? Because that's how we connected. Yeah, yeah, thank, thank you. I've uh, got a growing um, community on Twitter, which uh, I enjoy because it sort of is much less formal and allows you to connect with people who are interested in the same issues. I'm at, uh, at Alex Fish, F-I-S-C-H-C-C, -C, like is in Culver City, so Alex Fish CC. Mm -hmm. um, and on Facebook, it's uh, Alex Fish Culver City, um, F-I-S-C-H again. So, and of course, emails are welcome if people think I'm you know particularly interesting and want to... Uh, 
correspond. I'm alex.fish at culvercity.org. Well, I encourage everyone to follow uh, Mayor Fish, uh, learn about him, learn about Culver City, because maybe you listen to that, you will be encouraged to run as well. So uh, thank you, Mayor Fish, and best of luck in Culver City. And good luck to you in Bridgeport. I appreciate it. And again, check out past episodes, check out future episodes too. Subscribe, share, and, and let me know if you have any guest recommendations from any state in the country. Um, we encourage you to run for office.